I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. John Kongsgaard on a show of the Kongsgaard Winery. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. So your family goes back to Napa quite a long ways. Yeah, we're um, pretty much one of the original families. We came, uh, my mother's ancestors came to California right at the time of statehood. Really? That's that's quite a long time. Yeah. my I think he's my great-great-grandfather was Governor Boggs. He was the governor of Missouri. They don't say Missouri out there. And his... Um, claim to fame is that he's the guy who threw the Mormons out of Missouri when they were on their way to find their final place, which of course was Utah. The last Mormon out actually shot him when he was standing on the front porch of the state house. He was then impeached for reasons that are not in his self-aggrandizing journal, which we have in the family archive. And so he headed to California um, with Donner, actually, the famous guy who ended up stuck at the over near Lake Tahoe and they were all eating each other, took Donner for a kook, went on the Oregon Trail, ended up in Petaluma. His first kid was born at the uh, Vallejo Adobe. That was General Vallejo, who was then the Mexican ruler of Northern California. So I think a corrupt politician could get a job in Mexican California, and that's how he got his start out here. It's like Plymouth Rock on the other side, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were among the first to be out here. His kid, Boggs's kid, was Kit Carson's buddy. And young Boggs and Carson were actually the first guys to drive eastern cattle, as they called them, out to the west coast. So, Because your grandfather was a cattle rancher. Yeah, grandpa was a cattle guy. Yep. So we go way back in that sense. And then your dad was the judge. The dad was the judge, yeah. He was a Norwegian immigrant. Both his parents came from Norway and... He met my mom at Stanford Law School. She was a lawyer, too. And they came to her town instead of going back to Washington. And he eventually became a judge, the judge in Napa. And we have a wine named after him. He was a judge for a long time. Yeah, he was uh, very early on appointed and served to the end of his term. So, yeah, for almost 40 years, he was a judge. What was it like growing up around those two characters, your grandfather and your... And your dad. Well, my grandfather was a great, uh, he was a great asset. He was a great friend and a rancher. 
he was a quarry man also. I mean, the main family business was rock. We used to blow up the hillsides of southern Napa, put them in barges, and take them out to make jetties and so on. So not music rock, but... No, not music rock. The hard rock. Hard rock, yeah, that's funny. So, for example, we built Treasure Island. That's out in the middle of San Francisco Bay. That was a project of my grandfather. But his side job, his fun job, was a big, big cattle ranch. So the fun of that was that I get to grow up on a horse, and I was really an agricultural kid. I mean, the idea of school and all that was just so far away because it was all horses and cattle and cowboys, and it was a fun time. When did the wine thing come along? The wine thing uh, came later. You, you, you have to understand that if you're uh, my age and you graduate from high school in 1969, there basically was not much wine business in Napa. I happen to know that in 69, there were less than 20 wineries in Napa County. So there was no becoming a winemaker unless you were Mike Martini, who was Louis's son, who ended up being my lab partner at Davis and a good friend. But there was no, if you wanted to go into agriculture, maybe there was cattle, but my grandfather said that that's, that's a side business. You got to have a lucrative first business to be a cattle guy. So I kind of gave up on, well, I wouldn't say I gave up on wine. I just never occurred to me to be in, in wine agriculture. So what did I do? I went off and studied literature because I was equally interested in the ivory tower as I was in agriculture. So I studied lit and was sort of on the path to become a, a, um, a professor. But then things, the twists of fate brought me home at the end of college, some family health stuff. And there I was and got a job in the, uh, my dad's, let's go back, my dad's bailiff said, they're hiring at Christian Brothers. I'm sure you can get a job there, Johnny. And so I went to Christian Brothers on my own and as a 21-year-old or something at the end of college and I've uh, got a crush job, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. The, it, was, it was amazing fun. And I'm sure I crushed more grapes that year at Christian Brothers than I will in the rest of my life. But the Combined. Re- combined, the yeah. yeah. The, re- the real start for me uh, in the wine inspiration was going to pick up my family's allocation of Stony Hill Chardonnay when I was, I guess, in my junior year of college. Came home for Christmas, get out of town, go up to St. Helena, where, you know, one never went to St. Helena. It's now a very chic place, but there was nothing to do in St. Helena. There were only like eight wineries and there was not a restaurant to go to and so on. Anyway, I went up to Stony Hill and there was Fred McRae, who became my hero, among others, but my first hero in the wine business. He was receiving his, his, uh, his guests his uh, customers, he had his elbow on the mantle. He was listening to Wagner on a rainy day. I always say drinking a glass of Riesling, but his son tells me he was probably having a martini, actually. Anyway, there we were, and we had a lovely afternoon talking about music and wine, and I thought, hmm, I'd like this guy's life. So, But again, that was an unrealistic thing to wish for. Uh, and it all broke loose while I was in college being an English major. Then came the Napa Renaissance. And then it was logical to go study wine and easy to get a job. And you'd kicked around Europe for a while. Yeah, I had a year. I gave myself a year between college and whatever I was going to do for graduate school. It was either go get further into medieval literature and become a professor of that, or maybe this wine thing could happen. So I spent a year 
hanging out in mostly Germany and Austria because I have another, my other big interest is classical music. So I was in Munich and Vienna and Prague uh, mostly. And I had, gave myself a year to decide whether I was going to go to graduate school for wine or go to graduate school for literature. So drink a little wine now and again. Yeah. Yeah. I drank a lot of wine on that trip. Keep the pipes lubricated. For yeah. Them. Yeah. I became a, uh, I became a Gruner Veltliner and Riesling guy on that trip. Kind of ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. You know, who knew you couldn't say Gruner Veltliner in, in the United States till about 10 years ago, but yeah, that was fun. You came back and you went to Davis and you know, how did that decision making happen? I mean, well, I was a very academically driven person. I come from an academic family. My parents were law school. My sisters are highly educated. And so if I was going to do wine, then I needed to approach it academically, at least initially. So that meant Davis. I mean, it could have been Cornell or Montpellier or something. But with my lack of French, um, I decided to study here and... The joke is, of course, as an English major, I avoided science like the plague. And so I had to go for a couple of years of community college science prereqs, and then off I went to Davis. What was Davis like back then? It was fabulous. You know, it was the early days. Uh, it was just after Amarine, but it was kind of the second great wave of teachers who are now all have either just retired or have retired. So there was a great faculty, and the fun was because... The wine industry in California was having a renaissance. There was a need for enologists and viticulturalists. And somehow the zeitgeist that was out, we all felt it. And people came to our class from all walks of life. There were philosophers, English majors, microbiologists, you name it. And we had a very big class, a very supportive group. We were all drawn by this romantic fate of becoming winemakers. And we really, my group really kind of got the thing going again. It was Kathy Corison and the Saintsbury boys, Dick Ward and Dave Graves, and uh, Jack Stewart, who went on to Silverado, Dan Lees down in Monterey, and on and on. So it was a really great crew, and we all have stuck together. It's a big collegial friendship that's still very active. Who are some of your teachers? Well, Bolton was the main guy. He was kind of Amarine's successor. He's from Australia. He was a chemical engineer. He's a guy who still thinks that uh, malolactic is a curse in white wine and that the pHs of reds should be lowered to something to make them safe. And, you know, Roger is not a winemaking teacher, but he's a great wine chemistry teacher. And, you know, the Davis kids have a reputation of making wine by the cookie cutter and so on, but this is before that. I mean, they... They didn't know what they were telling us. They were just scientists talking to us about wine chemistry, vine physiology. And I mean, Roger had a subtext of maybe you should adjust the red wine so that the pH is lower and that sort of thing. But they weren't really telling us what to do. I think that came later. But it was a great crew. And then it was Cook and Cleaver were the viticulture guys. They're the authors of the book. Winkler was still around. He would come stand under the Winkler vine and sign our textbooks. And so it was still the end of the early days. It was Bolton and Ann Noble, the sensory evaluation person. Ralph Kunke was the microbiology guy. And they're all either dead or at least retired. So 
Roland came around at some point, right? Was that Oh, Roland, yeah, okay, now he's not Davis. Yeah, Roland was a huge influence on me. This is Michel Roland, the great Bordeaux enologist. Uh, he says he was born under a Merlot plant. I mean, he's a he's a uh, right bank guy, but he knows what to do with Cabernet also. He was I would say my biggest, I mean, he's not an academician. He's a wine-making consultant. But Michel was for sure the biggest influence in the early days of my winemaking. How did you guys meet? We, I worked for Newton. That was my big job. I had a couple little jobs, but my first big job I started uh, when our son Alex was born in 1983. And I was working for Newton. And the Newtons were very Europe-driven people. They liked European wine. Peter was English. Sua was Chinese. They had a lot of relationship to Europe. And so we were there together all the time. They sent me a lot on my own. And we thought we got to bring this French wisdom to California. Because California then, let's say 1985 is a round number. The winemakers in California mostly had not been to France. There was Foreman and Dick Graff. Those guys actually working for Peter Newton as barrel importers were in Europe a lot. But basically the old guard in Napa were very provincial. They knew how to make wine. The wine was good. And, we, you know, these French guys are our competitors and never mind, they're a bunch of frogs and hell with them. So I was among the first of the Napa people to spend a lot of time in Europe. What was and that so, like? Well, it was amazing. I mean, that, that's how we found Michel. When he came, when he came to Napa, he worked for Harlan, meaning teaching Bob Levy. He worked for Simi, helping Zelma, and he worked with us at Newton. So I was among his very first clients in California. France in those days was very interesting because they were, at that point, completely unthreatened by us. So you could go, I would go to Bordeaux every year for 10 days, visit 25 wineries, and they were much more open to me than they were to one another. You know, the guy would sit, you'd be at Garod La Rose and he'd spill the beans on their racking schedule and how they long they left the wine to macerate and so on. And he'd say on the way out, whatever you do, don't, don't tell the guys at Latour what I'm doing, you know, because they really did not talk to each other. They probably do more now than they did then, but they certainly uh, were open to Americans. I think we were just kind of funny that somebody from California was coming. We were like the three-legged cow. Look at this winemaker from California. No kidding. So it was, it was great. Each year I went with a list of questions. I'd go to Bordeaux and I'd say, okay, this year we're going to talk about Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. We're going to talk about how long do you macerate your reds before you drain the tank. These fundamental questions that nobody had a clue on here. There was a kind of tradition, maybe Andre Chelichev knew what to do, but that nobody was tapped into the French tradition. So I was trying to find that, and, and they were very generous. Same thing in Burgundy. And Michel ran a lab. So, yeah, okay. Michel is, he's not so, so numbers-oriented. I mean, to, to guide people, you have to have the laboratory analysis. But basically, Michel would go in the field, look at the fruit, and say, can we do something? Usually his something was thinning. California was, we were growing as many grapes as we could. We were happy with 22 and a half bricks. That was normal, and Michelle taught us 
about ripeness, about seed maturity, and that it was actually not just okay, but really important to have the pH up in the three eights, even four pH shouldn't scare you, which was of course heresy from the Davis point of view. So these are big, big changes, big revelations. He was telling you to pick closer to 25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we really moved the bar up in ripeness. Now it's maybe gone a little beyond that at this point. Uh, but yeah, I think my generation, the 60-somethings, we learned to make the first wave of really nice, ripe Napa Cabernet. You know, there's certainly great wines from the 50s. I'm born in 51, and 51 BV is a wine I still drink, and it's magnificent. But in general, Napa sugars were a little lower than maybe ideal, just to where maybe they're a little higher than ideal at this point. But I think that's adjusting. Were you doing much blending at Newton? Yeah, yeah, that's one of Michelle's strengths. Newton made Chardonnay from vineyards in the south part of the county where we bought fruit. But it was mostly a state, well, I guess by the time I got there, it was all a state-grown Cabernet and Merlot and Cabernet Franc, and we had a little Petit Verdot. Rick Foreman was my predecessor there, and Rick is, of course, a, a Bordeaux aficionado. And so they, he and Peter had all the, not, not Malbec, but all the rest of the Bordeaux varieties in place. And so part of the magic of Michelle was learning how to make the blends. And I'd say the other great contribution he made to Newton and to my thinking was to say, don't make a reserve wine where you cream off the top, but chop the bottom off. So we, right as soon as Michelle arrived, we made a second wine, just like the great Bordeaux houses do. And that, that made a huge difference. You also came up with the idea of unfiltered Chardonnay. Yeah. Now that was not Michelle. He was our red guy. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Burgundy in those days, every year, a week or two, visiting the Chardonnay cellars. We didn't make Pinot Noir at Newton, and I, I can say I never have. It's a variety that I, my hands are clean of. That's kind of fun because it means you can really enjoy Burgundy without and red Burgundy without envy, thinking, how did they do this? Why isn't mine that way? But the the Chardonnay picture was, my Chardonnay picture was very influenced by those annual visits to Burgundy in the 80s. So the unfiltered idea, which goes together with a second year of aging, it's pretty hard to make unfiltered Chardonnay and bottle it in the first August. But if you're liberated to leave the wine in barrel for a second year, now you can start to think of it like a red wine. Lots of people do not filter their red wine. Most people filter their white wine. That's partly just the time in barrel. Nature will clarify the wine if you give it enough time. So I found the, I had the privilege to visit the great places. It was Cocherie and Comte La Fon and Bonne de Martre and the Gagnards and Ramenet and so on. And what I found was that it was actually pretty shocking. My first trip was in the spring and here were all the wines that were six months old or eight months old, they all seem incredibly oxidized, totally knackered, kind of no sulfur and a lot of aldehyde. And I thought, what is happening here? And they said, oh no, this is just what they're doing at this time of year. Come back after harvest and you'll see these same wines and they'll be in a different stage. And 
So I learned, uh, I did that and came back and there were these wines that I thought were goners, were fresh and beautiful and had some nuance that you never can find in California wines of those days. So I learned the magic of the second year of aging to let the wine kind of crash in the summer and then be revived in the fall with the first racking and the end of malolactic and the first sulfur addition. So there's this whole idea of letting the wine really, really die and then having its resurrection come in the second half of its life. So we, I, we were really the fr I came back from France telling Newton this. Peter said, wow, that's pretty far-fetched. said, it's, it's, let's try it. We got a lot of Chardonnay here. Let's use our best vineyards, a few barrels, and give it a go. So we did that in starting in 88. So we left uh, the top barrels, a little blend of a few hundred cases for the second year, late sulfuring, full malolactic, racking around when the wine was a little over a year old to make the blend, first sulfur at that point. And this was a revelation. We thought, huh, there's where that nutty character of white burgundy comes from and so on. So we, we did it commercially finally in 1990. We messed around in, uh, in uh, 88 and 89, and 90 was the first year of Newton Unfiltered, and it was the whole production. It was you know several thousand cases. And what was the reception to that? Well, it was, uh, we were afraid because the wine had some just slight turbidity. If you were in a restaurant with the candles, you'd never know. But if you're at lunch and you hold your wine up to the sunlight and then you think, whoa, this is cloudy. There was no cloudy wine in California. I mean, certainly none. Not in white. Not in white, yeah. And so we, we made two bottlings of the 90 and... I went around the country to see all of our wholesalers, all of Newton's wholesalers, New York, New Jersey, Chicago, Florida, et cetera, and did tastings with all the sales staff to see what they thought, because we didn't want to do this if we couldn't sell it, even if we thought it made the wine a little better. So we did pairs of glasses for all the salespeople, and some of these are sophisticated in New York. The sales staff were some real connoisseurs. The People in the Midwest were maybe they were booze peddlers. Uh, but nonetheless, almost to the wholesaler, everyone chose the unfiltered one as the better tasting. When you gave it to them smelling, blind. When you gave it to them blind. And then you'd say, okay, hold them up to the light. Look at that. Oh, wow, that's a little cloudy. So shall we do it? Yeah, do it. So we had really buy-in from everybody in the wholesale world, and off we went. And it was a huge success. Having it be a little funky at the start, seeming like it's going to be oxidative, then adding the sulfur, bringing it back. Does that imply chain press or what kind of press is that to get it like that? No, the, it's not a pressing issue. It's, uh, the, the key is to, in our case, we put all the press wine together with the free run. There's no press fraction. It's a pretty big draw of wine. We don't exclude the final 30 gallons or something. It's all the wine. And that gets actually a little more tannin into the mix than you would, which is a oxidative, um, allows you resistance to oxidation. But the key is to, I mean, we use a bladder press, a pretty gentle, normal, modern press. The key is to get all the wine together. It spends a very short time settling, but a little settling. And then it goes off to barrel. No inoculation. Takes a week sometimes more for the fermentation to begin. 
and then the wines, especially our vineyards. We should back up and talk about the nature of the vineyards, but especially with our vineyards, the fermentations are pretty slow. These are low vigor, low crop vineyards that have naturally low level of nitrogen in the in the juice. How does that affect it, that, this low level nitrogen? Okay, so in other words, yeast need food. So do the bacteria. So we let the yeast go all on their own with basically no nutrition, no added nutrition. So they're just there. These are the wild yeast. So they start in a very low population. Takes them a long time to build up. Maybe it's a week before you can sense the fermentation. And it's not just the Saccharomyces yeast that's the finishing yeast. It's the all the flaky yeasts that start and they get to a couple percent alcohol and then they die and then the next crew takes over. And so it's a succession of yeast genuses even uh, until you finally get it about maybe at 18 or 15 bricks, you've got the finishing yeast, we call it the Saccharomyces. That's all in there. That's all from nature, it comes from the vineyard. But by the time the early yeasts have taken their piece of the pie there's not so much left for there's not so much let's say food left for the saccharomyces that's going to finish the fermentation so they're they're working under on low rations and so they work very slowly it's often the case at kongsgard that our fermentations won't finish until the the second year all the way past the next vintage uh, and that's fine with us. They never really stop. They might just about stop, but there's always a little CO2 protecting the wine. Maybe the first yeast that we're fermenting break down and release a little of their nutrition back to the wine. It's a kind of a mystery, really. But we find that the wines that take at least six months to ferment are much better than the wines that naturally ferment in two months. And incomparably different to the wines that would be made with inoculation. That's the easy way, right? But we like the chaos of nature. We like all the, every barrel has its own voice when they go as slowly as this, because they don't all go at the same rate, even within a lot of 20 barrels. So it's, it's among the ways that you can make the wine have a broader range of flavors and aromas. Let's say the, the in the, French textbook, the ideal would be to have the alcoholic fermentation finish and then have a little rest period and then the malolactic fermentation take place. Now, unless you inoculate, it's pretty hard to manage that. And so we have a more chaotic situation than that. We're happy if it's just a fact that we accept that sometimes the malolactic starts before the alcoholic is finished then you have a competition for the nutrition between the yeast and the bacteria. The bacteria are little tiny guys compared to yeast and they eat like pigs. So they can take, they can really strip the wine of its, or the juice or the fermenting wine of its nutrition and that slows the yeast down. That's okay with us. I mean, as long as they both finish, which they almost always do, then, then we're fine. Our wines and all the French wine that we admire all go through malolactic fermentation. But you generally, you might feel it as a kind of a suppleness in the mouthfeel, but you, in the great Chardonnays, you never smell the malolactic. I mean, malolactic has a very strong butter character that's a byproduct. It's a little thing called diacetyl. It's a little two-carbon thing that really smells of butter. 
if that happens early in the process, even better if it happens during the alcoholic fermentation, then that butter character is carried out of the wine by the fermentation. So one way or another, we always manage to bottle the wine without the mallow character, that without that butter character. You do sulfur bottling? Yeah. The sulfur protocol for us is a little bit right at the crusher because we're trying with the wild yeast, you're trying to manage the yeast and the bacteria. And the right amount of sulfur will slow the bacteria down and give the yeast the head start. Interesting. So okay. That's a very important thing. I used to be a no sulfur guy in the old days, and it's just an invitation for the bacteria to get ahead of the yeast. So that's the first sulfur. And then with the white wines, we often don't add the next sulfur until the wines are a year old. Partly they're fermenting all the way that long. And if they have finished fermenting and they're stable and happy, then we don't add any SO2 until they're around a year. So basically, as they're fermenting, they're giving off CO2 gas. Yes. So that's acting as a layer that's protecting them from oxidation. That's right. And we like a little oxidation in the beginning of the first year. This is this burgundy idea of letting them crash a little bit. You get that almond character that you can't get otherwise. And then with the reds, the SO2 is there in the beginning to manage this bacteria versus yeast race with the wild yeast and the wild bacteria. And then we would make the first SO2 addition to the reds when they're only three or four months old, when they're finished sugar and malolactic. Then with the reds, with the higher pH, it's important to keep the, not high sulfur, but maintain the sulfur for the whole aging. The vineyard that you primarily use for the Newton for mm -hmm. the unfiltered Chardonnay, it was your vineyard, and you yeah. still use it today. Yeah. So do you think that that kind of fruit, like you were saying, it's a low nitrogen vineyard, do you think that that ended up affecting the style of how you approach Chardonnay in general? Yeah, no question. In other words, the techniques that I've been describing of the no inoculation, it's actually a very high percentage of new wood. We haven't talked about that yet, but and that's wood that you don't really feel in the wine. So high new oak fraction wild fermentation, long barrel aging, that ensemble of techniques works for only certain kinds of grapes. And if you have low nutrition vineyards, meaning rocky soil, meaning low crop, I mean, the judge, our most famous Chardonnay is only around one ton to the acre, maybe less. And this year we had six tenths of a ton to the acre. So at that point, the wine is so concentrated that these techniques, which are kind of strong in effect on the wine, are appropriate for that kind of wine. Where if you took a valley floor, five ton to the acre, no sun on the fruit, old-fashioned canopy Chardonnay vineyard, and applied high new oak, wild fermentation, etc., then the wine would probably be a mess. Certainly, you couldn't leave that kind of wine two years in the barrel. The low vigor, low crop Chardonnay wines not only can stand a second year in the barrel, they actually need it because they're kind of tannic in a way that red wine is and they're wound up and they need to relax and they need a long time in barrel to become themselves. In fact, they need a long time in barrel just to finish their fermentations. So if it's less time in barrel than that, does it feel oakier? Does yeah. the length of, okay. Yeah, the yeast basically is absorbing oak. You think of how in Bordeaux they put egg whites in the red wine to absorb the tannin. Well, egg white is protein, tannin is tannin. 
in white wine, the yeast is the protein and the tannin is largely the barrel. So if you leave the yeast in the wine and you stir the wine periodically, in our case, more or less weekly for the first many months, even a year, and then less and less, then you're basically fining the wood out of the wine. And that sounds kind of like the protocols that I think of for certain burgundy producers in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned these techniques from the guys I mentioned back 30 or so years ago. And Burgundy's changed. And so it could be said that we're like a Burgundy winemaking museum of the 80s or even of the 40s. I think they made the wine the same from the 30s to the maybe the 90s. And then suddenly they have had this not completely understood premature oxidation, the so-called premox phenomenon. And I think they're making wine in Burgundy more with more conservative techniques, at least from an oxidation point of view, than, than what we do and others in California. So you went there and you saw people fermenting in barrel. Yep. And how common was that for whites in California? Well, it had started. I mean, Stony Hill was among the first. There was Stony Hill and Hansel were the kind of the little burgundy uh, lookalikes in California. It was starting to happen. And you had worked briefly at Stony Hill. Yeah, that was my um, more or less my first job. I worked in the 75 vintage for Fred and Eleanor McRae. It was a it was a fantastic experience. I mean, we really have modeled our winery in a way after them where it's a little estate uh, with a winery that can be run by just a couple of people. In our case, it's my son, Alex, and me. Maggie's the prez. She's the boss. And Alex and I do the cellar work. And it's a classic little tiny family, a classic Burgundy-style family winery. So how much does reduction play a part in the winemaking for white for you? Yeah, reduction is important. When you uh, talk to white Burgundy producers, they talk about the noble mercaptan. The mercaptan is a sulfide, it's a reduction, it's a hydrogen sulfide related thing. And it's one of those things, uh, one of those aspects of the aroma of wine, just like volatile acidity is, where if it's there at the right small amount, it's way, makes the wine way more interesting than if there is none. So reduction's important. That little bit of you know, people call it mineral character. They call it stony or flinty. Those things are all related to this very subtle, well-integrated reduction. And if you leave the wine to ferment for a very long time and you leave it in the barrels unracked on the yeast, on the lees, then you have a background, a tiny background of reduction. And that's the charm. That's where a lot of California wines that are fermented with uh, production yeast, racked off the lees soon, bottled when they're young, they are uh, they're simple in character. Fresh, maybe they have charm. They're not disparaging that as a style, but the full, the full capacity of Chardonnay for expressing itself requires long barrel aging on the lees, and with that comes this charm of reduction. It's interesting because it, it just dawned on me that you're so good at Chardonnay and you're so good at Syrah, and in both cases, there's some reduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting in Syrah, there is a, it's a, it is the most, of the red varieties, it's the most inclined to have this stinky character. 
you know, we say it's meaty or it's uh, savory or it's gamey, uh, but all that is related to to this reduction character. It's part of the variety. I mean, you can't you can't escape it. And the wines that don't have any of that wild character are the fruit bomb, simple Syrahs that most people don't like. I mean, the really cheap ones, that's what they're like. But the great ones have this, have this uh, exotic character. In both of uh, those wines, you, have, you, you need to be fearless about reduction. And the trick is, um, it's the same thing in the Chardonnay process where we let the wines kind of crash, go into an oxidative funk before they're revived. It's true too in red wine that if you allow the wine to stay in the reduced state for a while, you get those precursors of the wonderful, charming character that comes at the end of the process. But if you were afraid that the wine would stay the way it smelled, then you would get after it and get rid of the reduction. But those reduced characters, let's say in Cabernet, which we also enjoy making, in Cabernet, the reduction turns into that coffee, licorice, leather, chocolate world. Uh, And if you rack the wine, aerate the wine all the way through to avoid any trace of reduction, then you never get that that wonderful character. And then in Syrah, it's the same thing where you have that kind of skunky, meaty character, which eventually will morph into that incredibly charming, you know, licorice and smoked meat kind of stuff. Do you find that having reduction showcases the oak differently? That's a good question. There, there is a, there is a relationship between the smokiness of oak and the, and the just pure reduction character of the wine. And I mean, we find, for example, in Syrah that we like certain barrels that have a sort of smoky, hammy, sausagey smell. Just when you smell the fresh barrel before it's had any wine in it, and that that all kind of goes together. And in the Bordeaux barrels, we like a not exactly smoky, but a kind of a, kind of a, almost like a burnt chocolate, burnt sugar character when you just smell the fresh barrel before it's been used at all. And that that's a phenomenon that goes with the character of the aged Bordeaux varieties. So there's some connection for sure between the barrel and the and the reduction. So let's talk about your vineyard sources for a bit. The yeah. Judge and then also that Newton Unfiltered was based on and is based on a vineyard that you own. Yeah. The first vineyard I planted was uh, in 1975, 75 to 77. And my my then girlfriend, now my wife Maggie, and I planted these vineyards on the family land. This was the cattle grandfather's land just east of the town of Napa on a nice rocky knoll that's about 300 feet above the valley floor. And why did he buy that? He bought that in the 30s, and initially it was going to be a quarry site. We were in the rock business, and so lucky for me, he bought rocky land instead of, you know, cow pasture land, uh, because this is some really tough ground. It's um, volcanic. The soil is shallow. It's a friable, fractured basically volcanic ash once you're down about a foot. The roots can get into that a little bit. It's nutritionally complete, but low in nitrogen. In other words, we got all the zinc and boron and everything you could need, but not much nitrogen. So the the vines are low horsepower, but they're high mineral nutrition. 
So that's a vineyard that I planted in the, as I said, in the, in the 70s with Maggie. Why'd you plant it to Chardonnay? Well, that was Chelichev. I had the, this is the, and the other great influence in my early winemaking was Andre Chelichev. Uh, he lived by good fortune on the street, on the, in the little neighborhood at the bottom of the hill where the Judge Vineyard is where I grew up. So I knew Andre from when I was a young person, before I even knew he was a winemaker. He was this amazing, wonderful, charming guy who loved to tell the neighborhood kids stories about czarist Russia. And you know, he was a white Russian. It's a, it's, his story is, a, is an amazing thing. Anyway, Andre was always my friend and he became my advisor. And I got to actually work with him professionally when I worked for Winyarski at Stag's Leap in my apprentice days. But Andre was always there on my team and when I was ready to plant in 75, I, uh, he walked up and spent the afternoon kicking the clods with me. And I said, well, what should we plant here? Of course, I thought Cabernet, because Napa was already Cabernet-centric. And he said, no, no, you should plant Chardonnay here. Chardonnay? I mean, there was hardly any Chardonnay in Napa at that point. So I you know, followed the master's recommendation. He was my, my guide. Did he tell you why he made that choice? Yeah, he said, it's cool down here. You're going to have low vigor vines and you need to have for Chardonnay to excel. It needs to be low crop and you, this is the place. Andre had some for BV. He had some great vineyards out in Carneros on volcanic. There's not much volcanic in Carneros, but out on Duhigg, he had a beautiful place there. So that was, that was his inspiration. And so I just followed him. Andre said to me that ash, volcanic ash is the limestone of Napa. There's basically no limestone here, a few little tiny bits. But if you want that vigor-reducing, high-mineral situation, then for here it's ash. That's really interesting because also the Syrah that you source today is volcanic, right? Yeah, that's from Hudson. Uh, and it's from a very unique part of Hudson in the Carneros where where we have this, uh, it's basically the foothill of Mount Veter where the the volcanic action was just starting. It's not even a volcano, but there are volcanic vents that dumped all this ash on the ground that make a very interesting mineral situation in the soil. Because a lot of times what I think of in Burgundy is that the limestone gives a reductive quality to the wine. Yeah. But it would seem that perhaps volcanic, you know, from Etna and other examples, that volcanic soil can give something that seems like a reduction too. Yep. And I wonder if that's why the, the comparison might really hold. Yeah, part, I think part of the reduction phenomenon comes from, from slow, difficult fermentations. And if you put vines on really tough volcanic soil or on limestone, then you end up with these starved vines that give low nutrition must to the yeast, and then the struggling yeasts are what give the reduction. So it's... When you think of reduction, you have to think, why are the yeasts acting this way? And basically, you follow the yeast to the grapes, to the soil, and it's where the grapes are grown. That causes that character that so, we all love. So it's interesting. So it really follows. It's not just that you pick them there. It follows from that. Yeah. You know, into the process. It's, right. It's directly about the process of the fermentation. Yep. But that's affected by where the, the vines grow. Exactly. I mean, you can't separate the grape juice from the soil. It's the, the grape juice, if we're doing our jobs correctly, the grape juice, ultimately the wine is the expression of the ground. And if you're, you can see it everywhere you go in Europe, where the great vineyard stops and the lousy vineyard starts just across the stone wall, and it's because the soil changed. 
And you can imagine if they're making all that money on one side of the fence, they tried to grow a few rows on the other side and the wines flunked because it's about the nutrition of the vine. You learned a lot from Andre Telechev and he had a circle of younger people that were around him. And I bet you encountered some people that were became big names in the wine business at some time or other. Andre and his wonderful wife, Dorothy, would uh, always have Russian Easter. That's not quite on our Easter. It's a different ecclesiastical calendar. But Andre, being an old Russian, would invite all of his students. He loved his protégés, and he loved being a teacher. He was kind of a natural pedagogue. And so we would all gather at, at their house on Stonecrest, which is just uh, on the same street as our judge vineyard. And Andre would pull out these amazing old BV wines, Muscat de Frontignan, for example, a fortified Muscat, like a Muscatel that he made in the 40s and the legendary Pinot Noirs from Magnum and everybody brought their own wine. And that was some real fun, very collegial. There was people as diverse as Winyarski, for whom Andre was consulting and Dick Graff. The first time I met Dick Graff was there and uh, everybody was trying to make their most kind of crazy statements. I remember Dick Graff telling me that, John, there's never been an important white wine made that wasn't fermented in a barrel. I thought, whoa, okay. And then I thought, that guy's full of it. And then, you know, maybe he's right. So those were fun times. What was Dick Graff like? He was quiet. He was confident, incredibly confident, humble, he would make these wild statements, like I just said, but not as if he was blowing your mind or trying to knock you over. He just was, this is my conviction and this is my story. And no, he was a very straightforward, lovely, kind of soft-spoken guy. And you worked briefly for Warren Winarski. Yeah, my apprentice jobs, my first jobs in the wine business were two vintages at Christian Brothers, where, as I said earlier, I'm sure I crushed more grapes in those couple of years than I will for the whole rest of my life. And then I went to Stony Hill, my hero, Fred McRae, and my buddy, Mike Collini. There I, would, I could say that I probably spilled more wine hooking up hoses at Christian Brothers than we made at Stony Hill. That was great. And Fred was a wonderful teacher about the business, about the way of life. He was great. I remember the exit interview with Fred. He said, get your drains right in your new winery and don't make too many varieties. Perfect. That's pretty good advice, actually. Yeah, yeah, and don't make your place so big that your kids won't want it. I mean, that was the perfect advice. Yeah, so my other mentor was Nathan Fay. He was the first grower in the Stag's Leap area. He was a mining student. So he was a California boy. Went to the Colorado School of the Mines and kind of fell into farming. And there he planted Cabernet back in the early 60s. And so I'm among a group of people, including Warren Winyarski, who were completely overwhelmed by Nathan's homebrews from the 60s. He had a little funny label that said Nat Fay, N-A-T-F-A-Y and a cross, common A. Uh, and there was, uh, it was made in 30-gallon garbage cans. It was always a kind of patio party. All the buddies were de-stemming by hand and fermented in garbage cans and aged in Nathan's beautiful cellar at the vineyard. So that was when I was just thinking about wine, Nathan was a family friend and took me under his wing and I got to help him with his home brews. And finally he said, Johnny, we better make some wine together. So in 75, my first vintage, we made, Nathan and I made a Mead Ranch Zinfandel together. Kind of fun now that we're just looked down on the Mead Ranch from our Atlas Peak Ranch. 
So we made, uh, we made, I guess we split a half a ton of Zinfandel and that was my first wine in 75. And then by 76, I was at Davis. And so from 76, seven and eight, my Davis buddies and I all got access to Nathan's grapes and we made three years of homebrew Fay Cabernet. Many of the first wines that, oh, this crowd of mine, Dick Ward and Dave Graves and Dan Lee, uh, Mike Fisher, Kathy Corison was among us. We all made Fay Cabernet three years in a row and learned from Nathan. And he would, I remember 77, the middle year, was a terrible drought. And Nathan said, I don't care if you kids are in college, there's no way you're going to make good wine out of this. And of course, we made great wine out of it because it was a super low crop and really, really fun. And Nathan was our mentor, not just in winemaking and grape growing, but he was a great collector of European wines. So our whole Davis crew would go over to sit at Nathan's picnic tables and he would pull out at this point, this was in the 70s. So he'd be pulling out 50s and even 40s vintages of exotic German wines. My first ever 30-year-old Spätlese was from Nathan's cellar. He had endless Bordeaux, great Burgundies, and so he was a friend to all of us and very humble guy, kind of aw shucks, you know, Johnny, I don't really know if this means anything to you, but let's try and let's try this 47 Cheval Blanc, you know, like the icons of wine Nathan pulled out of his cellar with like, this is no big deal, wink, wink, you know, this might blow your mind. So he was very generous. It was those 40s vintages, 50s vintages Bordeaux that kind of set for you how you wanted to make red wine, right? Yeah, like absolutely. For Cabernet varieties. Absolutely. I mean, those were those were the days when, I mean, back in the 40s and the early 50s, that's when the Bordelais were not afraid of ripeness in a hot year. I mean, 47 shovel, that wine was 15 alcohol and probably 1% sugar. So yeah, that's those were the revelatory wines for me. And you know, you could get them. They weren't they weren't at five thousand bucks or twenty thousand bucks at auction. People had them and shared them. And so, I remember when I was in the middle of Davis, I had a summer in Berkeley taking some really nasty science classes, and I was invited by a Bordeaux collector friend on the night of my quantitative analysis final. I really needed to squeak a C in this thing, and it was not looking great. My friend called me and said, um, can you come to a tasting tonight? I said, Dade, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of my chemistry final. He said, well, why don't you hear what it is? We're going to have duplicate bottles of all the 45 first gross plus shovel and ozone and Petrus. I said, I'll be there. How'd you do <laughs> and, on the final? Yeah, I made it. I made <laughs> yeah. it. And, and it changed my life. There were eight wines, the likes of which I'd never seen before. And this was a vision for the purity and grandeur of Cabernet that I'm still thinking about it. Did you bro down with Roland on that? Because those are benchmark years for him. Yeah, yeah. No, he and I have, in fact, the guy who collected those, Dade Terriot, a great uh, Bay sure. Area collector. Oh, we Terriot all know. Vineyard. Yep, that's his brother. Um, Dade was a great collector, is a great collector of, and very generous, like many collectors. And we introduced him to Michelle. And so we had the repeats of many of these great tastings. We were big 61 and 64 fans together with Michelle. And so, yeah, we have, we've shared lots of great, great Bordeaux between Dade Terriot and Michelle Roland and Maggie and me. So interpreting the Fay Vineyard. Yeah. What did you find? Cause that's kind of the, the birthplace of the Stag's Leap right there. Yeah. Okay. So the Fay, the whole, the whole Stag's Leap phenomenon, which started and surrounded Fay, the amazing situation there Unlike 
Rutherford or Oakville or St. Helena is that you have a graciousness in the tannin there. The wines can be just as powerful as Tokalon or the great Atlas Peak stuff, but they have an extraordinary silkiness that you can't find anywhere else in Napa. There's this kind of brown sugar shovel blanc character that you find in the old phase in the best of the Stag's Leaps of Warren's, for example. That's a unique situation. And how did those homebrews that you uh, helped make, how did they age? Well, we still have them. We have, we're down to the last case or so of the 76, 77, and 78. We made another one in 85. We have a little more of that. Uh, they're still my show-off wines. I mean, when I, when I went to have my wine interview at Newton in 83, I was to bring some, to bring some wine that I had made. I brought one bottle and I staked my whole job on 78 Fay, And they just bowed down and said, come on, you're our boy. This is great. So a lot of us made some really amazing wine from that with no technique. I mean, there was no, we hardly even knew how to put SO2 into wine, but that vineyard just made itself glorious. So you were at Newton for about 17 years? 15 years, yeah. What was that like? Well, it was great. It was a major operation. They had, when I got there, they were making about 5,000 cases. Rick Foreman and Peter Newton formed this thing together in 78, I guess. Maybe it was 80. Anyway, I got there in 83. The first wine was just being sold, so it was really a young company. There were three or 4,000 cases being made, and there was about 40 acres of vineyard planted. Radical Spring Mountain, mountainside vineyard. And by the time I left, it was about 40,000 cases, uh, and we'd planted 100 acres. So I had the time of my life planting vineyards under very extreme situations. I had the run of Europe at my disposal. The Newtons were very generous to me to insist on sending me to Europe every year to learn. And so it was a, it was great. It was really a pioneer kind of winery. It was the, I think Newton was, maybe there were 60 wineries in Napa when Newton started. And so it was, it was still the very fresh early days. It's a great experience. What did you learn planting those vineyards? What was important to you? The real trick for me was trying to match the variety to the soil type. Because anytime you're in the hills in Napa, it's a geological collision. I mean, we had at Newton, we had right next to each other, we had a thing called the Red Hill and the Gray Hill. And the Gray Hill was ash, volcanic ash that was maybe between 6 and 10 million years ago. That's the so-called Sonoma Volcanics. And the red was Franciscan shale, and that was 100 million years old. So there's 100 million year old soil, 6 million year old soil, and they overlapped. And so how do you decide what to plant where? Well, that was a lot of going to France. I mean, we were a Bordeaux organized ranch there. And so that was a lot of my question. A lot of my questions in Bordeaux was to say, why do you grow Petit Verdot where you grow Petit Verdot? And I remember the guy at... Chateau Palmer, the vineyard man, uh, getting out of his Ducheveau and standing on this really gnarly rocky ground, pebbly, you know, gravelly ground, and saying, looking at me like, insulting me like, what else could you grow here besides Petit Verdot? I thought, well, that's why I came to ask. So I learned from the Bordelais uh, and from a few people in Napa, including Andre, 
how to match the variety to the soil and then the trellising and so on. And we really have to, I learned there through some mistakes and some really great successes, how to match the vine to the soil. And then how to, once you had that, how to manage the farming. I mean, some needed more hedging, some needed no hedging and so on, but try to get the the best vine for the ground, regardless of what the marketing department says. Like this ground says Cabernet Franc, that's what we're doing here. And then we'll figure out how the wine goes together. But to put Merlot on the wrong ground is a disaster. To put Cabernet on imperfect ground takes you from A to B. You put Merlot on the wrong ground, you go from B to F. So, I mean, it's really, I, that's among the things I learned there. Even at Newton, when it wasn't all my decisions, it was a little more of a team of the Newtons and me and Michelle, I've always been compelled to try to make the wine that I wanted to make, not to make the wine that I think the market wants. And in fact, my wine style hasn't changed so much over my, this was my 41st vintage this year. And I think when you look back at my, at the wines I made in the eighties compared to the wines we're making in the 2010s, they're not so different. I mean, certainly we've crept up just slightly in ripeness. The wines are a little richer, a little more opulent than they used to be. But basically, you see the trends in the market, and I've kind of ignored it, really. I mean, we're, our wines are, you could say, like French neoclassical. We know the model. I've been to the Mother Church over and over and bloodied my knees going down the rows at Latour and at Koch and so on. And, you know, th those guys don't change their style. They know what to do. Their vineyards tell them what to do. And we've tried to tried to stay in the middle in the classical style. You know, certainly they're the ripeness phenomenon. I mean, I was among Roland students to go all the way up to 25 or even 26 bricks. And, you know, now there's a, a bunch of crazies on the 30 bricks club, I call them. And there's now people who are pursuing more, quote, balanced wines that are actually sour wines. Uh, so there's always been the extremes, but I've usually, I mean, I've made a, a business out of staying in the middle. And I feel at the same period of time where, you know, people are attracted to different trends or are also trends in viticulture. Like, I feel like that was the rise of a brew and hedging and... yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I there's no question that the viticultural revolution in Napa is very profound and very positive. Partly we had an opportunity to rethink all this stuff in the 90s when the phylloxera knocked everything out. So you really were looking at your bare ground and you could fortunately a lot of people of my generation had been including David Abreu um uh, we had all been in Europe quite a lot, and I remember coming back from France in uh, 83, my first trip, and just getting my machete out and going after the vine, saying, you know, how can the, all the wine that I love comes from vineyards that does not look like this vineyard and at Newton. And so we just, in one year, we changed all the trellising. I thought, you know, this is nuts. How can we have these? We had a tea that's a sort of a, we would call it the California sprawl where you'd let the vines grow up a foot and then go through a tea trellis and go all the way back down to the ground. I mean, it's certainly, it's not, I'm not taking it away from 1951 Beaulieu Private Reserve Cabernet. That was a great wine, I would say, in spite of the trellis system. But certainly now we have a more enlightened way of growing grapes. And 
for me, it has a lot to do with getting sunlight onto the fruit. Are you looking for direct sunlight or dappled light? Or? Well, for us, it's all about road direction. So in our case, if we plant a vineyard, it's always northeast to southwest. Then you have a very obvious afternoon side of the vine and a morning side of the vine. And with both red and white, I like to take basically all the leaves off the morning sun side of the vine in the fruit zone. And then on the afternoon side, not only do we not leaf, we don't even take the laterals out. So our vineyards, whether they're managed for us by Hudson or Hyde for Chardonnay or grown by us, our vines look like a, somebody who shaved one side of their face and not the other. So they're really shaggy on the afternoon side to have the maximum of protection, not even dappled light, and then fully open for the morning light. Does that orientation allow for really tight row spacing? It's sort of like everything else in Napa where there were, people are imitating the French. There's a kind of zeal to pack as many vines per acre as possible, but I think that depends on the ground. I mean, it makes sense if you're down on the valley floor and you really are trying to create competition. But on our mountain ranches, we like to have seven or even eight foot rows. We put the vines three feet apart down the row, but we need a little breathing room so the roots in the shallow rocky soil can actually go horizontally before they meet each other. So you, to me, you have to look at how many cubic feet of water holding soil you have underneath each vine. And if it's shallow, then it doesn't make sense to put the rows too close together. It always makes sense to put the, for me to put the vines close together so that when you're at the end of the cane or the cordon, you're not very far from the roots. So the long vine is a bad idea, but the rows being far apart, depending on the soil depth, can make sense or not sense. And that length of vine is a sap issue? Yeah, I mean, it's a thing that's been much studied at Davis and Bordeaux and Montpellier, and I can't say I completely understand it, but we all seem to know that once you're more than a certain distance from the fork in the trunk, the end of the vine is not getting nourished quite the same as the nearer to the ground. It's also true that unless you have a very high vigor situation, and I would say none of our vineyards anyway that are interesting, none of the vineyards that I work with are high vigor. And so if you're trying to maintain a big vine with a big root zone, it's very hard to have the distribution of vigor along the cane, correct? So a short cane, maybe a five bud cane, it's pretty easy to get all five of those shoots to grow in a uniform way. But if you have a 10 bud cane or a long, let's say a four foot long cordon, it's very hard to get the middle of the cane to perform as well as the end or the beginning of the cane. And for getting fruit uniformly ripened, we really need to have all the shoots looking the same. You want them all the same length. You want the fruit distributed evenly along the fruit-bearing trellis. And so smaller vines, easier to manage that way. And then even ripeness probably allows for a more manageable harvest. Yeah. I mean, the trick, it, maybe you could say in white grapes, there's some charm to having a little bit of mixed ripeness where you might have a 25 bricks cluster and a 23 bricks cluster the lower one having a little more acid, that's manageable in white, maybe even attractive. But in the red, the problem is that when the sugar is low, the tannin is nasty. And so the main thing in getting the red wine 
towards perfection is to have ripeness of tannin. And if you don't have a uniform ripeness in sugar, then you're not going to have that. So it's really important. I mean, we all do Napa. It was among the things I learned from Roland in the early days that was not done here at all. Now it's very common is to do the green harvest right as we get into the half or three quarters of the way through veration, through color change, then we go and take off the fruit that's not, that's still green, that's not going to ripen on time. Because you can't see them. And a month later, they're, they're not green, they're red, but they might be a week or two behind. And it's a pity to throw them away, but that's what you have to do to assure the ripeness at the finish line. So you segued out of Newton into your own project and some others in the mid-90s. And why'd you make that choice? I give all the credit for the starting of Kongsgard Wine to my wife, Maggie. Neither of us are business people. She studied horticulture at Davis when I studied viticulture and enology. But uh, she had the entrepreneurial moxie to say, okay, guys, let's do it. Um, this was a period when, so this is 93, we started thinking about it. 96 was the first vintage. The idea was that prior to that, it was not possible to make wine in Napa without having a winery. Remember, there was a whole thing of uh, the Napa auction. They, were, they weren't going to let wineries that didn't have bricks and mortar get into the auction. It was just not done. There were no custom crush facilities. Uh, you could never get your boss you'd worked for. Let's take Newton for an example. I'd worked for him for, for over 10 years when we started having this idea. And there was no going to your boss and saying, okay, I want to start a little winery of my own in the corner here. And I'm going to take the Judge Vineyard, which is the best grapes that you buy, okay, from me, and make my own brand out of that, and we'll get along together happily. That just was not, not happening. Now, it's uh, almost the case that in order to keep your winemaker, if you're a big winery, you need to allow your winemaker to have his own or her own brand. So... We decided that this was something we could do. We had the Judge Vineyard, which we owned. We could get those grapes for the cost of the farming. We had good relationships with Lee Hudson and Larry Hyde, and we thought we could start small and give this a go. And then I would, of course, have to have some kind of a other income source. So I got into uh, uh, winemaking and viticultural consulting. So we bravely jumped out of Newton after the 95 vintage and started the Kongsgard brand. And we were, the first year, I think we made 500 cases of Chardonnay, mostly from the judge, a little bit from Hudson and Hyde, and then 100 cases of Syrah. That was the beginning. And we didn't make Cabernet under Kongsgard because we simultaneously started a brand called Arietta with our friend Fritz Hatton. That's where our Bordeaux efforts Pretty good ones too. I yeah, thought. yeah, yeah. No, it was a great. It was. It still is a great brand. That Merlot Cap Franc was pretty slamming. Yeah, yeah. We did that for the first uh, ten years, and then we sold our half of Arietta back to Fritz, and then went off on our own. That's when we, in fact, when we built our winery. So for the first ten years, we were squatting. I was at Luna. I was the winemaker there, and with George Vare and Mike Moon, and they uh, were very happy to have me there, making my wine in the corner. I mean, we were about half the winery when we started because Luna was just getting going. So we did that for five years. And then at that point, we were solvent. We'd sold a few vintages and I stopped consulting. And then at that point, we leased a winery in St. Helena for five years. And then finally, we built our own place. So how did you end up meeting George Fair? I mean, how did that connection come together? George Fair was uh, one of the members of the team that 
organized the sale of Behringer. Behringer went from Nestle, Swiss-owned, to an American group. And there were a group of four guys who were kind of wine business consultants, uh, including Mike Moon, who worked for Behringer, and George, who'd done a lot of things in the wine business. Another guy, Dick Lemon, who was my connection to them. Uh, he was the lawyer in the, he's the transaction law guy. So they were all kind of my friends, but Dick especially, and Luna was looking for somebody to make their original wines, and we were just at this point of looking for a home to start our project, and we we came together. Because I think a Luna is mostly white, great variety. Yeah, Luna was, when we started Luna, I was there in the very, very beginning. I was a partner. They were very generous to me. And we made Pinot Grigio and Sangiovese. That was it. And then once I pushed a little bit, we because partly because I wanted to have some to blend with the Sangiovese, we started making a little Merlot. Oh, okay. But it was a, basically an Italian concept winery, mostly Pinot Grigio. And how do you remember George Vare? Oh, George was a fabulous guy. He was he was a very very dear friend to me, and we got to be. Uh, he was a great boss. He was kind of a I trust you. You've got to trust me. Go do your thing and talk to me on Friday. He was a very hands-off boss and very, uh, he inspired you to be creative on your own. But when we, re we really got to know each other and become friends when, in order to learn how to make Pinot, Gris, Pinot Grigio and Sangiovese, George and I spent a lot of time in Italy together. We had one great trip after the next, I think five years in a row we went. We really went everywhere Pinot Gris was grown in Europe. We were in Alsace, in Alto Adige, in Friuli. We had so much fun learning. And then we went every year to Tuscany to talk to the Sangiovese makers. So George and I just had a blast. And he was, he was very interested in the arcane. The more offbeat the variety, the more interested George was. And Pinot Gris was not grown in Napa at all. Richard Mendelssohn had an acre, in fact, coincidentally, right next to Luna. But basically, there was none. So we were we really got that thing going. But while we were in, especially when we were in Friuli, George, of course, fell in love with Ribola Gialla. I mean, one of the most bizarre and obscure and, you know, uh, totally regional variety that you could think of. And we, he and I together through Yasko Grovner and Stenko Radikon and all those really wild people up there in, uh, up in uh, Friuli, we were the first to bring Ribola to Napa. So that was George. He was a character and he was interested in the unusual. The great moment was at the end of our first trip our first Pinot Gris trip, we'd been in Alsace, then we were up in Alto Adige, and then we ended up in Friuli. And the last night of the trip, uh, we'd met Grovner during the day, which was a revelation. Uh, and then in the evening, we went to see Radicon, and one of, he's still, a I mean, very much a friend and, and one of my real heroes. He wouldn't receive us until seven o'clock at night because he was planting a new vineyard and he knew he wouldn't be out of the field until then. And he said, I only will receive two people. And we had George's wonderful wife, Elsa, was with us. So we had to send Elsa to Trieste for the day. And George and I went up there. We arrived at seven something. He came stomping out of the field and commanded his kids to get some sausages and cheese. And we didn't leave till four in the morning. And we had drunk almost every wine that that, that guy had ever made. His dad was 
awakened at 11 o'clock to say, come on, Gramps, we're going to, we're going to open the, whatever vintage it was. We got these amazing people here. So anyway, that's that, those, those times were the most fun where George and I somehow, I mean, with George's leadership, we were able to get some very non-international Italians to embrace us and enjoy the fact that we were so enthusiastic about the varieties that they were growing that were not popular in the United States. And we developed some friendships, especially George. He would go there for all his holidays. I mean, he had a a standing invitation right around New Year's where he would bring all of those great Freulian winemakers together for a lunch that George would sponsor. And they would be sharing of ideas and he would bring our wine back to uh, back to Freuli to show them what we were doing and get the notes and they would come to see us. So it was a very rich back and forth. It's interesting to me because that seems like some producers who make some textural whites. Mm-hmm. And when I taste some of your whites today at Kongsgaard, they seem pretty textural too. Mm-hmm. Did anything interplay there? Was there any revelation? Well, I think one thing uh, for sure is that both the, the varieties that we were most interested in in, in Freuli were Tokai, Tokai Friuliano, whatever you call it now, Ribola, and Pinot Gris. And those are all very tannic varieties. I mean, they would be maybe if you added Viognier to that list, those would, and maybe Roussan, also varieties I'm interested in, that would be the group of white varieties that are noble in character and extremely tannic, even bitter in the best sense. So texture in white comes from, how do you get that density? It's not just alcohol or acidity, it's tannin. It's the case in, for example, in our wine, The Judge, when the the typical taster will say, wow, I really admire the acidity in this wine. In fact, it has pretty good acidity, but what it has that other white wines from Napa don't have is tannin. And you know how it is in red wine, it's the same in white, that the tannin accentuates acidity. In red, maybe it's a negative. In an unripe year, the acid makes the tannin seem nasty. But in great white wine, tannin makes the acid seem prominent in a positive way. But it's hard to get, you know, there's good tannin and bad tannin. There's good bitterness and bad bitterness. And if you have small, if you have tiny grapes from low crop vineyards that are, and especially from the shot Wente clone, then you can have a lot of skin per amount of juice. And then when you squeeze that just in the natural way, you get higher tannin in the ultimately in the wine than you would if you have bigger grapes. If you try to take a big grape and do something exotic like skin contact or ferment it with the skins or something, certainly you'll gain tannin, but that's not the same as tannin that comes from just having small grapes. So that shot Wente clone gives you a smaller Chardonnay. Yeah, shot, uh, shot means that it has a, uh, we call them shot berries because they look like buckshot. They're tiny, they're seedless actually. So in the famous shot Wente clones, sometimes also called the hens and chicks clones, where you have on a cluster of 100 grapes, you might have 40 of those grapes or even 60 of those grapes are tiny seedless berries that are eighth of an inch across where a normal Chardonnay grape on that cluster might be half an inch and a Chardonnay vineyard from the valley floor might have three quarters of an inch diameter grape. So it's all about the skin to juice ratio, and the shot Wente gives you that. Is that the clone that you planted the Judge Vineyard to? Yeah. I worked 
in the early days at Stony Hill, and they had a great collection that actually came from Wenty, from old man Wenty collected these clones in the, I think, between the wars, maybe in the 30s. And there's some selections that are more productive and some less and some with the shot grapes and so on. So I got to get our first selections for, for the Judge Vineyard from Collini from at Stony Hill. And there they've been taking the best, not the most productive, but the best vines from each block as they propagate to the next. And so when you get all the way up to the top of the hill, this is really Collini and McRae's selection of the shot Wenty. So there's some special genetics that have been collected there. Because you and Mike Collini had developed a friendship when you did that harvest in 75. Yeah, yeah, we're old friends. I worked, uh, so yeah, 75, that's, you know, that's 40 years ago. Mike had just come to Stony Hill a few years before, and I was his, uh, they always had one gringo assistant to the winemaker, and I had the privilege of that job. That was really fun. And so what about the Hudson and the Hyde? I mean, those are both really famous vineyards now, but I bet when you started working with them, it was less well-known. Yeah, well, I could say that I have, the, I have the distinction of being the only buyer of grapes who has, or winemaker who has bought grapes from Hudson every year since he started. So when I was at Newton, we were friends in college at Davis, and when I was at Newton in 83 in my first vintage, that was Lee's first vintage of selling grapes. And I was right there to buy some of the Chardonnay and Cabernet Franc from him right, in, right off the bat. And either through Newton or Kongsgaard and Arietta, I've always bought from Lee. And he's my closest friend in the growing world. And he shares with Larry Hyde the distinction of being the best custom farmers in maybe in Napa, certainly in Carneros, where there are guys who, Larry, even before Lee, Larry's a little older and has established his ranch just ahead of Hudson. Larry was always there to say, okay, you're the winemaker. I don't want to fight. You tell me what you want. And he worked for Mandavi this way. Zelma would tell him one thing. I'd tell him another thing. Dave Ramey would tell him another thing. And he would just be happy to do it. Every 10 rows down the same block, he would have a different viticultural protocol, and he was very, very pleased to be the custom farmer. That's pretty cool for you to see as a winemaker, though, because if you follow that through, you can see what that viticulture might imply in a bottle that you purchase from the store, right? Yeah, could- yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a kick. And the same thing at, so Hudson and Hyde are now both bottled, vineyard-designated bottlings with a lot of our colleagues. And you can you can look at how, for example, Kistler or Ramey want their grapes grown, just physically grown, whether they're leafed or not, or thinned and so on, compared to ours. And then you can taste the wine and you really can see it. It's really interesting. The personality of the winemaker shows itself in the wine, in this case, because the winemaker wants certain things done to the vines and other people don't can make from the same vineyard a more kind of nervy wine if you leave the fruit in the shade and you leave the crop maybe slightly higher, the acidity be higher, maybe the density of the wine is not quite the same, but the wine is more kind of jumpy. And our wine with the full sunlight and lower crop would have a little broader, maybe more majestic quality than the more nervy quality that a colleague might want. I were doing a non-mallow style, I might mm-hmm. want to have it be more more nervy. Mm-hmm. But since you're doing full mallow with that time in wood, you yeah. want that lushness. Is right. That fair yeah. to say? Yeah. The wine needs to have some 
breadth of structure to enjoy all of that aging and malolactic. And then you actually kind of developed a special contract with Lee Hudson, right? Yeah, the acreage contract, we call it. When I worked for Newton back in the 80s and Lee was just getting going, we, as the viticultural and winemaking community in Napa, had not really worked out this custom farming idea. of You're the grower, you're my partner, we're going to do this together, and we're not going to argue, we're going to work uh, for a common goal of great wine. It used to be the grower would want a high crop and low input in the field to save money. And the winemaker always wanted low crop and a lot of fussing around in the field. And so there was always this tension and we managed as a business that way. But then comes a year where there's a really big crop. I say, you know, even though we might be able to ripen this big crop, the wine is not going to be the same. So please take this five ton crop and reduce it to three and a half. Uh, that's like saying, okay, let's just walk down the row and throw your $100 bills all over the ground and then plow them under. It's just, it it's, doesn't make business sense to the farmer. So Lee and I got into a big to-do about it. I mean, don't you want quality? Didn't you go to Burgundy and don't, you know? And he'd say, well, you're just being a jerk. You're stealing my money. And so finally we worked it out, uh, partly under Peter Newton's business supervision. He was a good businessman. We went to Lee and said, okay, you want five tons to the acre? Here's your check for five tons to the acre. Now let's do the thing. And you have no loss, you have no risk, and we'll have what we want. And we're happy to pay you this 40% premium, if that's what it takes to get us to be happy with each other, sustainable farming and great winemaking. So uh, what it gets down to then is you say, all right, I'll just pay you by the acre. You think... We agree that the potential of this vineyard is to grow five tons. We want three tons. You just pay for the five. And then take your lumps. And it's worked perfectly for 30 years. And I feel like a lot of people have taken that paradigm as well and kind yeah. of used it in their own. Yeah, it's a more and more common thing. Because if you have a vineyard that's naturally shy-bearing, you don't really have to get into that. You maybe pay the grower an extra premium because he's not making as much money and you love his fruit. But if there's a vineyard that's really, it's in um, ground where you could grow a slightly higher crop to the detriment of the quality, it's absolutely the way to do it. And it's fairly widely accepted now. You developed your own winery. And when you laid it out, what did you want? We have a very simple, beautiful winery. It's all underground. It's a cave that was dug in uh, 2005 in time for the 2006 vintage. So all the barrels are stacked up just too high every other barrel on the second level so that uh, you can go stick your nose or your ear over every barrel in the cellar. It's naturally temperature controlled and humidity, so it's silent. It's a great place to listen to classical music. But basically, it's a very simple Burgundy-style winery where it's uh, the barrels are sitting on rails or on top of each other. There's no forklift driving around with barrel pallets. Uh, we have a beautiful press and two pumps and some little stainless tanks. It's just as simple as it could be. It's all about scale for us. We make about 3,500 cases, and that's the amount of wine that my son Alex and I can make just with our bare hands, basically. We have almost no equipment. There's no 
75 foot long sorting table there because we do our own grape growing or else we have utter control of the grapes. So there's never somebody delivering us fruit with a surprise. We know exactly every cluster before it gets to the winery. So it's a very simple, it's a very simple setup and it's next to our house and surrounded by our vineyards. And so we're really living the dream to have it all under all on one property. And that's up on Atlas Peak. Yeah. Yeah. And you planted a vineyard in that area too. Right. We were inspired to go up there because among other things, because uh, there's a, there's a really excellent Cabernet vineyard that's contiguous to our property that I'd been using on and off for my whole career. So we knew we could grow amazing Cabernet up there. And I suspected, and I've proven it to be the case that like our colleagues, Mayakamas across the valley from us, you can grow Cabernet and Chardonnay on the same property if you're up at elevation. The top of our vineyard is 2,500. That's one of the highest vineyards in Napa, just a little above Mayakamas. The first planting was Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Chardonnay, and a little tiny bit of Viognier and Roussan. And so far, they're all looking really encouraging. And I'm very happy to say that the Chardonnay is, is truly excellent from up there. The trouble in Napa is, uh, I can say from a Chardonnay perspective, is that since Cabernet's king in Napa, everybody wants to grow Cabernet. And there's a lot of ground that could be used for extraordinary Chardonnay that isn't being used for, it's just being used for Cabernet. So I think we have a spot where where we can do both. It's going to be exciting. What's it been like to grow Roussan, Viennier, Chardonnay, Cab? I mean, as you're planting them, laying them out, seeing every harvest come in, I mean, how do they differ? We've only had three vintages from this new field. We planted it only in uh, 2010. So what we find is that the, uh, the, as you would expect, the Chardonnay is first. The genetics would suggest that, but it's it's uh, later than it's certainly later than Carneros because of our elevation up where we are. It's not as cold in the morning, but it's never as hot in the day, even compared to Carneros, because the elevation gives you that. So we start ripening a little earlier in the morning because it's we're just barely above the fog. And it's a little warmer in the morning, but it's never as hot in the day. So the vines don't crash. You know, they kind of go in hiding in the afternoon when it's too hot. So we have a very temperate climate. And the Cab and the Cab Franc are ripening kind of mid-season as if we were about in Oakville. And we have a very fine tannin in both varieties. Very, uh, it's firm but silky. And we seem to be able to get the full character at maybe 25 bricks, we're never tempted to push it higher than that because you can taste in the field the real charm of the fruit character at a slightly lower bricks than you would have on the valley. And what about Roussan and Viognier? I went with Peter Newton in the uh, 80s to look at Viognier. It was a personal favorite of his. We grew a little bit up at Newton. We spent two weeks in Condrieu one year. We visited every single farmer and his dog who grew Viognier up there. And then at the end of that trip, we went down the Rhone uh, really for a viticultural pleasure tour. We ended up at Bocastel, which of course we admired, uh, especially the white wine. And the Parans were having a um, retrospective tasting for their English-speaking wholesalers, coincidentally, when we arrived there. So we were invited. and There we got to taste this was in 85, more or less. We got to taste all the way back to 61. 
the old vine, pure Roussan. And it was a revelation to me. I mean, I was a mature winemaker and I just like, I learned about something I had no idea about. It was a, it was a mind blower. So I came back from that trip wanting to grow a little bit of each of those varieties. So we make it, we make a Viognier Roussan blend unheard of in France, but in our case, the best use of the varieties together. The Viognier is very floral and the Roussan is very earthy and together it makes a magnificent wine, but it's a very small part of our production. It's maybe it's uh, in a big year, it's five barrels. It's important to me spiritually, but not financially. Do you find that the picking times are pretty diverse or? Well, what happens in both of our vineyards, we grow both of these varieties also at the judge vineyard. What happens is that the Roussan will get up to about 22% sugar. It's pretty low in acid just to start with. So it kind of stalls at that point. And the charm in Roussan comes when it starts to turn that reddish color. That's where the name comes from. So it'll It'll look like normal grapes get to 23 and then just hang out for about three weeks as it turns this kind of rusty color. In the meantime, the Viognier next door is chugging along like a normal variety. Uh, the pH is going up, the acid is going down, the sugar is going up. And so by the time the Viognier gets to around 25 sugar, then the Roussan is turned it's beautiful color and it's ready. So we've been able to pick them together on both ranches. And then we just ferment them together. We did them separately for a few years on both places. But the Vio Russe, as we call it, at the Judge Ranch, we've been making that as a co-fermented wine since for 15 years. Did you find a different texture on release with co-ferment? If you can co-ferment, it's always the best idea. I learned that from some Bordeaux colleagues I had that experience with my Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Merlot Cabernet Franc experiments, where if you know the core of the vineyards, the two vineyards can go together, and maybe you pick just to be safe, just to know what's the Franc like on its own, what's the Merlot like on its own, same with Viognier and Roussan. You never like those wines as well if you blend them after then, if you blend them together. They give each other something during the fermentation. It's easy to explain with red because the skin of the Merlot is in contact with the juice of the Franc and vice versa. It's a little harder to imagine what's going on with the white grapes, but the pH changes to what the combination is, just for example, and that affects the aromatic profile and the fermentation rate and everything else. So we um, believe in the magic of co-ferment. Because sometimes people say, you know, Viognier lacks acidity. Yeah. And no one ever accuses Roussan of lacking acidity. So I wonder doing a co-ferment if that's helpful. The Roussan is a really tannic variety. So you put that rustic tannin of the Roussan into the Viognier. And then the Viognier with its low acid seems like it has more acid because it gets the structure from the tannin. So I think they're actually very good mates. So back to that Syrah for a second, mm -hmm. the Hudson Syrah. Yeah. What have you learned over a period of time in terms of dealing with that? It's crop sensitive. In the early days, that's an older vineyard now, but when we first started it 20 years ago, it was a very exuberant, kind of wild vineyard. And we, in those days, had to thin it to one cluster per shoot. That was pretty radical. I mean, it was a bloodbath. But that got it down to from the, say, four to two and a half ton level. 
now the vineyard is pretty well settled down. And so it's, it's a big decision every year whether we thin it at all. This year we didn't thin it at all and we got a little less than two tons to the acre. But it's very crop sensitive. The other thing we learned in that's different from my Bordeaux training to do with Syrah is that the Syrah doesn't enjoy as long a maceration. So with the Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, those varieties we typically have four or even six weeks of the skins with the wine, the juice or the wine in the tank. So it's maybe four or five days before the fermentation starts and then maybe two weeks of fermentation. Now we're almost to three weeks. With the Bordeaux varieties, the way we do it, it seems to benefit from not much pump over or not much extraction, mechanical extraction, but we like to have that long steeping of the must with this, of the wine with the skins. But uh, with the Syrah, that's not, it's not only not necessary, it's probably detrimental. So we've learned to have the skin contact time about three weeks. That makes the wine uh, just as rich and a little bit less, a little, make it a little fleshier. Can be, you know, somehow the coat rotis can be a little metallic and hard in the finish. And we can avoid that and get this more kind of Hermitage richness if we stop the maceration at three weeks or even 18 days. That's, that's kind of our norm now. The other thing with Syrah that's interesting is that while the Chardonnay can be almost all new wood, the Cabernet is always all new wood. The Syrah, in a way, the biggest wine that we make is very vulnerable to the oak. So we want only half new and special barrels, less pushy barrels. We don't use some of the famous Burgundian Coopers are more flashy and that's not appropriate for the Syrah. What about stems? No stems ever. I always go to the European antecedent. You go to Gigal and look at what they're doing. You go to the great Jamin, the great guys in the Cote Roti and Charpoutier and so on and see what they're up to. It's a complete mix, half and half. Some do it and some don't. So why would you put stems in? One would be to stabilize the color. That's tannin to help with color stabilization. In our case, the Arceras, even when they're 10 almost 20 years old, they're still very blue, red, and opaque. So they don't need color help. They have enough firm tannin and acidity to give real exciting mouth presence. And so the extra tannin from the stems we don't think is necessary. You know, having said that, we get together at Hudson every year, all the makers of Syrah, and there are wonderful wines made with the stems even at lower bricks. So it's a completely open question. But Uh, your parcel is a little different than some of those other Syrah parcels at Hudson, right? Yeah, I I think we have the best one. (laughs) Of course I do. Uh, But yeah, we have the most volcanic. I think the Hudson Q block is so strong in character that I think you can make it with stems or without stems and you might not even know the difference. But we're, you know, we're looking for the subtle the subtle distinctions, and I think it just makes it a little milder without the stems. So when do you start drinking your own wines? At what point do you start opening some of these bottles? What do you enjoy? Oh, you know, we drink them out of the fermenter. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, have a, uh, I have a real taste for young wine. I mean, it's a typical winemaker, is that you're tasting the wine very avidly right up to the bottling. And then it goes in the bottle and it goes to the warehouse and into the cellar under our house. And 
I haven't lost interest in it just because there's a cork there. And there's a lot of change in the first year in the bottle. It's sort of like the first six months of the wine's life where it's going from yeasty and full of CO2 to becoming wine. There's another life when the cork's in there. And that changes very in a very exciting and quick path to its first bottle maturity. So I love to taste them for the first, let's say, six months. Then they settle in. And then the next question is to see how the vintages stack up. Because no matter how broad-minded you are, you're in love with your little stupid children. And and you can't see the distinctive qualities as well as you can when you compare them with their colleague vintages. And so it's very interesting as soon as the wine's in the a year in the bottle to start doing little mini verticals. So we taste the wine all the way through. We have a lot of commercial visitors, you know, the wholesalers and so on. So we have to drink the, to taste the young, the wines we're selling. And then if you have an occasion like that, then you want to show the older ones. And so we have a good stock of everything that we've made. And you find charming moments in each wine's history, like the 04 Syrah right now is just a knockout. So that's like our show-off wine. The um, 2009 Cabernet is in a really special place. So we keep track of them, and then we know which ones to use to put our best foot forward when people come to visit us. Do you find it important to decant the wines when you serve them, or do you just do it straight from bottle? I think the young wines benefit from decanting. Me too. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> that's know, why that, I asked you, because yeah. that's usually what I end up doing. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I mean, we found that we we didn't rack the Syrah very much in the early years, and we found that if we opened the wine and, dec- I mean, racking or during the aging process, uh, and then we would find that we would really want to decant the wine even 12 hours ahead. We thought, well, why don't we do that for the customer and just rack the wine one more time? So now we do that, and the wines are less urgently in need of decanting but for the young when the wines are less than three or four or five years in bottle i think a hour of decanting is a good thing once they're older you might miss something you know that it's one thing if it's a really skanky barolo that's 25 years old you really want that first hour to go away but in our wines i would say once they're a little older then it's not necessary probably not even beneficial do you think that your wines in general have heft to them? I think of them as, as wines with heft. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, I think in Napa, the, we have the pleasure of, of a good growing condition, and so we always have uh, sufficient alcohol. We like the, both the red wine and the white wine to have enough tannin to, to um, give the wine presence. And I think I learned in Bordeaux the idea that the appropriate high-ish level of tannin gives the wine good posture means they kind of sit up nicely so um yeah i think they have good heft we want them to be graceful but not not light so 40 vintages yeah if you could go back and tell the young john something what would you say i mean i know that you kept your protocol pretty straight through but what would you when i was a young winemaker i was far less aware of crop level I guess as a young grower, you're so proud of your fruit that you can't stand to throw it on the ground. But I think in general in Napa, uh, we were not so hip to crop level. And maybe in the old days with more virus selections and so on, it was less of an issue. But as we got into more modern viticulture, then we were growing some big crops in Napa. And I think the wines from that era would have been better with thinning. 
What else? I'm sure I've learned a lot about barrels. You know, there are coopers and there are coopers, and you get to know these different quality of the coopers. You hardly can tell a French cooper what you want. You just find what they have and use that for your wine. In other words, customizing your barrels is a nonsense. But you go to these great old traditional cooperages, Darnajou and Dami, for example, are two of our favorites, one in Bordeaux and one in Burgundy. And they just have a special character that you have to be sensitive to. We used to buy all the barrels from Sagoon Moreau or one of the bigger guys. Partly there weren't so many available, but the nuance of the barrel is something that is come to me in the second half of my career. I could say that after all these vintages, I'm a little, a little better at predicting what the wine's going to be like, how the vintage is going to be. You know, you know, um, crazy year like 2011 and opulent year like 2012, those are pretty obvious. But the years, the, the wonderful years like 10 and 13 and 14, I mean, how are those wines going to be different? I'm a little better at predicting that now, just by how it tastes in the field and kind of standing by the vine and looking at them and thinking, well, how, how are you here on the harvest day and what are you going to give me? I'm, I'm a little better at that. After four decades, John Kongsgaard will allow that he's a little better. Thank you very much for yeah. being here today. What a pleasure. John Kongsgaard of Kongsgaard Winery on Atlas Peak. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This interview was made possible with the assistance of Napa Valley Vintners, a nonprofit trade association committed to promoting and protecting the Napa Valley.